0: Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter, and welcome to the Genus Brewing Livestream, a live stream we do Sundays at 8.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time in the morning, um, and uh, if you haven't tuned in before, this is uh, basically something where we run down Genus News or Beer News at the beginning, then we go into a style of the week, which today we're doing Doppelbuck, Doppelbuck, Doppelbuck,
1: Doppelbuck.
0: Nailed it. And then we go into two discussion topics, which today we're talking about. Um, how to build a recipe and I'm doing this two ways although I only wrote one way down so oh, we're gonna you. have to wing the second one <laughs> you son of a bitch <laughs> uh, that's alright I'm pretty sure we know more than one way to build a recipe
1: I'm pretty sure we honestly build recipes in different ways too we well, probably do kind of um,
0: well, my, my thoughts were like the one way is like you have a style that you want to build or a flavor you want to get and the other way is you've got some ingredients that you're like how do I get rid of these ingredients how do you work backwards from that yeah, so, that that's that was that was my thought for the second way. We'll see if we get That's there.
1: actually how we brew beer here.
0: That's yeah. most of our beers come from hey, we <laughs> gotta get rid of this.
1: Yeah, well, both processes. We're looking for something, and then it's also like, ah, we want this flavor. What do we have that we can get rid of that will make that flavor? Exactly. Uh shall we uh pop an Easter beer? Probably. Uh, it feels right. We're uh popping an Easter beer talking about Doppelbach. We will try to attempt to drink this uh Icebox, Doppelbach to Eisbach sent in from MJ uh, Riffy Riff? uh, on YouTube, Mutant
0: Ref. Mutant, Riff. Mutant Riff? Re- yeah, Ref. Mutant Ref. Mutant Ref. Nice. Uh, all right. Riffey.
1: So we have an envelope we're supposed to open after this. Um, unfortunately, when you sent this in, we did put it in the fridge. And uh, as you'll see on all three of these bottles here, so this is a call out to everybody sending us beer, please put a piece of masking tape on it and at least your name. Yeah, this, like, yeah. Uh, this one has absolutely nothing, and I'm really hoping this is I'm pretty sure that's it, it, but I am
0: not positive. Not 100%. <laughs> uh,
1: like this other one has SB, and you can feel welcome to call us out on this and you know say, hey, that's my I beer. Think,
0: I think I remembered that one being
1: dropped off, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that one's not the Eisbach. No, this is not. Uh, judging by the color, it's not the Eisbach. Uh, you know, so just just a heads up. Um,
0: Sometimes we're well, super organized, and so uh, they all the beers to go it? together. Uh, I think this one might be Jimmy's. Uh, I think Jimmy's on. Jimmy, is this yours? The, it says BW on the top. Fourteen point five. Ooh, barley wine. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yours. I'm excited about that one now. Uh,
1: okay, so let's uh, pop it. Let, we'll get into it. Uh, let's uh, uh, the, uh,
0: in the little Izzy first.
1: Yeah, that's what we're. That's what we
0: were doing, right?
1: Yeah, I was just telling everybody to please label their stuff better. Yeah, because it'll help.
0: Because Tim's, it's all Tim's fault. Uh, generally, I put the beer in the fridge. Well, while we're opening that and getting some eisbock poured, uh, let's talk about a little bit of genus brewing news. Uh, we mentioned this last week, but we're super excited because we have, I think, our second one on right now. Uh, we are doing a terpene IPA series. Uh, that's basically a I- base IPA that we are um, backdosing individual kegs with isolated terpenes. And this one that we did, we, so we've done myrcene, and then the second one we did was uh, one, of the, one of the woody ones.
1: It's on the board right behind you. Uh, I cannot say it right at all.
0: Terpinolene, terpinolene, terpinolene. That's yeah. what we're calling it. Um, so that one's got a lot of the same, that woody kind of component of like rosemary and uh, um, a lot of the woody herbs, yeah, right? Say.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: so looking He's it road. up, uh, it also is present Ooh, in... Ooh,
1: uh... boat. Nice. Springtime. Uh, anyway, uh, like boat I said, a lot there. of squirrels. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so uh, that one is present in uh, things like cumin. Um, there it's... Uh, oh shoot I lost half of them I'm sorry I had them uh the one that I honestly get is lilac it is present in lilacs and especially in that beer the floralness really uh and being from Spokane I guess where we're the lilac city uh it really reminds me of that really nice like woody floral mustiness that lilac can get in there it's cool it's awesome it's way different than myrcene was yeah that was just so big and dank and resinous i mean exactly what you would expect from, from a
0: myrcene bomb
1: yeah um, it's awesome i mean absolutely awesome what these little guys are doing to our kegs and uh, the flavor that you're getting off of it and actually being able to pinpoint that flavor i mean we can talk about it we can drink beers that are heavy
0: on one of these uh with hops or something like that but But until you actually get an isolated terpene and pop it into a keg you don't know what that terpene does so it's exciting for us we have a lot more um and uh stay tuned for the next one that's probably going to be out pretty soon yeah uh we did a strawberry uh, margarita ipa which is currently on tap as well Uh, tasting super easy to drink and super delicioso
1: yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty much exactly what you uh, would expect off of that beer. It's really yeah. nice.
0: Um, if you haven't checked out our Instagram, we do some really cool pictures where we try to do beer releases and show you some, some really cool pictures that make you really want to drink our beer. And so uh, that's uh, that one was, of them. That was a fun <clears throat> shoot. That was pretty yeah. fun to do. Um, Tim wet his pants. It was so <laughs> <laughs> Yes.
1: I mean, fully. Just one half, though. Literally only one half. Uh, but the uh, key to that is that it was warm. That's
0: right. mm Mm-mm. Mm. Okay. And tucking down one leg. Um, uh, Empire Wagon, you made it, made it to a live stream. Awesome. Uh, welcome. I'm excited to have you here.
1: We're always excited for to see you here.
0: We have a new video out on our second channel, Genus Not Brewing, and we have another one that's going to be ready to pop out pretty soon. Um, the new video was blind tasting at different price points for different sour beers.
1: Yeah. Uh, We also involved our wives in that one. That was a pretty fun time. Uh, I would say they're probably a fair bit more entertaining than we are.
0: Yeah. That's why we married them. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 100% why. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah,
1: so that'll be cool. Go watch it. Like it.
0: Do it. Yeah, have five. Uh, speaking of the second channel, we put out some new shirts on our website related to the second channel. It's got the second channel's logo on the back, and then some cool channely things specific to things that happened on the second channel on the front. So, if you're interested in getting one of those, do it. Um, we also bought a screen printer that has nothing to do with uh, nothing to do with, you know, with beer, but you know, we did Uh, because reasons well no
1: it does have things to do with beer because we're gonna make some really awesome uh one-off shirts for that yeah and uh you guys need to like come in and buy them you know they're not going to be available on our website unfortunately for you people out of country uh but if you send us enough beer and buy one of our beer well no i think we can't ship out of country with our beer kits yeah
0: dang it but if you send us enough beer we'll like you yes we'll be friends a lot um, all right, that's it for our Genus Brewing slash regular beer news, which means it is time for our Beer of the, the week. week. Bum bum bum. Beer of the, the week. week. Beer. Whoop. And uh, uh, the week, uh, beer of the week today is a Doppelbach that's Category 19A. A Doppelbach is traditionally a uh, sweet beer, uh, and originally it was actually a style of beer that was lower in alcohol than modern versions um, because they did not fully attenuate. So uh, the original versions were called liquid bread by the monks because they had a lot of residual sweetness, a lot of calories, and uh, relatively low alcohol, meaning compared to today's doppelbock, you could actually session on them.
1: Yeah, uh, but, I mean, comparatively. Yeah. When they were drinking normally, like, 3% beers, a 6% beer was pretty darn heavy. Yeah. But that that's about where they used to sit, was 6%, you know, right about in there. Um, I will say, I do think that this uh, might be the uh, Eisbach that we are drinking. There is a certain, uh, well, you said it was a Doppelbach two Eisbach, and there is a certain... Maillard sweetness that's in here when uh, Peter's talking about sweetness he's talking about Maillard not just having a whole bunch of sugar in there or too much caramel malt but the good Maillard caramelization reaction.
0: Yeah, and so uh, ice for those of you who don't know, is a doppelblock block that is ta- taken and frozen, uh, and then the top layer of mm. ice crystallizes, and that is skimmed off, leaving the bottom layer um, more concentrated, more rich, more sweet, more alcoholic, obviously, uh, and that is a process called freeze distillation. If you ever look up how to make, like, Applejack at home, it's pretty much just you take apple juice, you ferment it, and then you freeze distill it to concentrate down that alcohol. Great way to get a hangover, by the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because you're only taking the water out, you're not actually getting just the pure alcohol. You're getting all of the Everything else with it, too. So, you're all yeah. getting all the extra sugars, which don't help, but as well as the uh, not quite so pure alcohol. Yeah, at the, the higher time. the
0: higher and lower, lower alcohols that you usually cut out on a distilling run. So, um, yeah, that's how Eyes uh, Box are made. Uh, let's jump into Doppelbach before we go too far into this, this specific beer, because yeah. this needs to warm up a little bit anyway. Just, just a touch. Um, so yeah, Doppelbach, uh, to today's modern versions, you can actually have a relatively light doppelbock. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, uh, optimator is on the lighter kind of end. Um, uh, or you can have, you know, that more traditional, uh, rich Brown kind of Doppelbach. It's never going to be dark. It's not going to be like a Brown, uh, Brown ale level of darkness, but it can go down. I have the vital statistics actually. You do. We should probably have that out to look at. Um, it can go down to 25 SRM. So 25 SRM is that deep brown. Depending on the malts down. you used, it can be... Huh? That's up. Yeah. Well, up to 25 SRM, that's down, down darkness.
1: To, uh, yeah. Okay.
0: Darkening okay. is down in my mind. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, it's all right. It goes between 6 and 25 SRM. We'll yeah.
0: say that. 6 is like orange, like like very almost yellow orange. And then 25 can be pretty dang dark. I believe the original, or like probably one of the earlier famous Doppelblocks was Salvatore. And Salvatore... Just a random guess mm-hmm. here is like somewhere in the 18 range. Yeah, I'd say that's probably good. Uh, Paulner's is
1: pretty light. That one would be definitely yeah. on the lighter hand side. More than six, but I mean probably around 12, maybe 10.
0: That medium uh, method. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, that's Doppelbach. When it comes to uh, aroma, it's going to be very strongly malty. Um, it's going to have that... You know, that Maillard production that Tim was talking about, Mm -hmm. Um, relatively to uh, virtually no hop aroma at all. So uh, even though you use traditionally like a classic grassy noble hop, um, you really shouldn't be able to smell or perceive that like you do in like a Czech pilsner. Um, You can have a little bit of chocolate aroma. doesn't need to be there. Um, Definitely should not have any roast or burnt astringent notes to it, though. No,
1: that's a, a very big thing because, again, you're not getting the color necessarily from the grains, but you're getting it from a long boil and a Maillard reaction. Yeah. Uh, appearance in that. Appearance, uh, like we said, this can be a huge range. Anywhere from about a deep gold copperish color all the way into dark brown. It's almost always going to have really good red garnet hues to it. Again, coming from a high, well, a high proportion uh, of German specialty malts like Munich and Vienna and things like that. But also from that big Maillard reaction and the concentration of the sugars and colors. Uh, in there the darker beer yeah sorry i just got on that uh these beers are lagered it's a bock it's lagered so they should be bright and sparkling crystal clear on that even if it's dark and you can't quite see all the way through it it still should be nice and clear coming through there uh as well as you know nice and clean from that the uh, appearance should be clean the head most of the time is going to be nice and bright white Uh, You're not going to have, because you don't have a lot of the darker roasted malts, aren't going to have a lot of the darker head associated with that. With some of the darker versions that are boiled longer, you will have a little bit of a uh, darker head going
0: on just because the concentrated sugar's in there. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times when you're making these recipes, they're way less complicated than you might think. You can go as simple as a Pilsner and a Munich malt, for example, or just 100% Munich, and just boil the tits off it. So um it doesn't need to be complicated a lot of people I see are like we need caramelic we need chocolate malt to this percentage and it's one of those beers that you can add those Um, if you add too much of them they will definitely be not too style Um, but it's one of those beers that's definitely more method driven than it is recipe driven so um, this one kind of falls in my keep it simple stupid category
1: yeah and in all honesty a lot of german beers follow this a lot of the beers that we perceive to be extremely complex are complex because of processes not because of malt complex or um, malt bill complexity we added the malt bill complexity in modern brewing because we can actually make more in different types of malts than we could in ancient days you know but that does got more science science but That does change the flavor to it. You cannot get the same flavor of sweet caramel uh, from crystal malts or any other kind of malt that you do from AR. That cannot be faked. Uh, And there's a difference. When you taste a really, really good Doppelbach, there's a difference between having that malty caramely sweetness
0: and just like, oh yeah, this is
1: a sweet beer with a whole bunch of C60 in it.
0: Home for life. Thanks for the super chat. Who's more hungover, Peter or Tim? I'm going with Tim on this one. Uh, definitely, Peter. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I do have coffee. Not to, you know, that's a start. We've got coffee and we've got other stuff. And beer. Um, so for our malt of the week this week, I chose kind of a cheater malt in case you can't do that 120-minute you know, boil or you're not planning on doing a decoction mash, those processes we were talking about, which would be our preference. Um, but Dark Munich is going to be my malt of the week because it can give you a little bit of that extra Maillard reaction and kind of kick it towards that flavor realm without having to do all the same processes. And it's not going to overly complicate your beer. It's not going to be like a Munich, or, again, like a chocolate malt, like I said earlier. It's going to add different dimensions that you don't necessarily need they're not inappropriate but they're not needed for a good doppelbach
1: yeah uh, if you do your process right you don't need to do this but this makes it a little bit easier and so you don't have to boil it for two hours
0: yeah or more um, hop of the week, complete threw away. I put saws. I actually probably could have gone something high alpha too and used less hops. Something like Magnum's totally fine. Uh, basically, any cheap hop that you can get is going to work in this. You're trying to hide the hop. You really should not be able to uh, taste that hop. And go Gonzaga. We've had a couple people say Gonzaga. Um, yeah. Yes, they are in the final two. I believe that's what they call it, the end of sports exactly. tournaments. Exactly. The final two. The final two. It's the final, final two. two. Um, so we've had, Gonzaga's been a, a staple of Spokane culture for a long time, and uh, we're super excited that they're in the, pl- play, the, play, the champions. <laughs> they're in the champion circle. They're fighting to win. That's right. Um, yeast of the week. Um, so yeast, obviously, you're going to want to go with a clean fermenting lager yeast, and there's a couple mm. ways you can go on this. I went with a more malt-driven, clean fermenting lager yeast. So by that, I mean I went with Global, which is the lager strain from Stefaner.
1: That is a beautiful, beautiful strain for it, That uh, for any lager you're actually going to do. Super dependable, super reliable. Uh, it actually has a wide variance on temperature, so you don't exactly need temperature control to use this yeast, though it helps get some specific flavors. Uh, it, it's awesome. I mean, there's a reason that it comes from Wine Stefaner and they make amazing beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I put a cookie in my mouth.
1: <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, You know, I'll also go out, uh, that's the yeast of the week, but another great yeast to use for it uh, would be the Munich lager yeast, Mm -hmm. uh, also Harvest from Imperial. Uh, Global is going to be a little bit cleaner on that. Harvest will uh, accentuate
0: the malt a little bit more. Just throwing um, a little bit more it, yeast but. fruitiness that's gonna push forward that sweetness and give you that same complexity, um, yeah. or that big complexity that you want off of a
1: Doppelbach. And I would say the difference in that is probably preference in all honesty, um, and maybe even regionally.
0: Yeah. So. Um, there you right. go. That's it for our Beer of the Week. If you've got questions on Beer of the Week from this week, then I don't know, leave them in the comments or the or the chats or the, or the, 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 the groups. The, the things. Start a a Reddit sub page about questions you had about this week's episode of Doppelbox.
1: Um, I don't know how to use Reddit. (laughs) Uh, Here's a good question from uh, Empire Wagon. Have we ever tried to make a Utopia clone or something like that? In all honesty, yes, we did by accident. Um, for a professional brewery Washington actually limits us we can't quite get to the utopias 30% Uh, I think we're at 22.5% before we have to get a different license Uh, that type of brewing we actually have done a video on or talked about on the live stream so go check that out methods for making high ABV beers Um, that one is an awesome video and you do really need to do some extra techniques to get these beers up there but also talking about simple grain bills. When we made this, it was literally almost a single malt that we did it with. We just spent a hell of a long time boiling things down, yep. creating molasses with it, and you know things like that.
0: It was like a two-day process, yeah. you know, just getting that syrupy caramely goodness. It's just yeah. from reducing malt, com- uh, reducing malt sugars.
1: It was absolutely amazing. I suggest trying to uh, actually make some uh, molasses out of your wort at some time, either just to put on pancakes uh, or eat. Um, or add back into your beers, because it adds some incredible differences and in complexities. But, good question.
0: Um, let's talk about this beer we're drinking, Yeah. Um, you know, while we're still on the Doppelbach, and this is relative to the Doppelbach. When it comes to the flavor profile in this versus everything we just kind of listed off. It does say non-standard Doppelbach. Non-standard, okay. So, uh, the one thing that I will say is it has some of that, um, like, Uh, chocolate powderiness to it and a little bit of a little bit of roast character which I would say is inappropriate for a Doppelbach doesn't mean bad beer but means a you know less uh, less traditional Um, it's a good beer but it almost tastes like I would want more uh, more middle and I also want to say this one finished uh, a little bit on the dry side so it doesn't taste like it's got a lot of residual sugar to it I would say it probably finished around 1.012 somewhere in that range Um, and it's hard uh,
1: keep so, in mind that we may not actually be tasting the Doppelbach. Um We think we are.
0: We think we are, and we hope you are.
1: Yeah. Uh, also, thanks for coming on Homebrew for Life. Have fun at the uh, Easter brunch. And you punched that
0: clown, buddy. Yeah, I mean, straight
1: in his little squeaky nose. It <laughs> needs to squeak when you hit him. Just a good squeak.
0: Yeah. You know you did it right if he squirts water <laughs> on you.
1: Yeah. Uh. Gets everybody all wet. <laughs> Oh, my wife's gonna be proud of me. She always, uh, she always, she always is. is. She always is. Anyway, there is a lot of roastiness in this. Um, it doesn't quite, honestly, taste like. There's a residual sweetness. It does taste like there's some high alcohol notes, which gives me hope that it is the Eisbach.
0: Yeah, uh, there's also a little bit of fruitiness, which would be you know, in that same in, in that same realm of Eisbachiness. Yeah. Uh, so uh, with that, let's. Do you want to try the, the anything else before? And see before
1: SB. Well, SB just doesn't.
0: SB's got to be. It's got to be. Summer something. brunch. Spring brunch. Mm. Spring brunch. Mm, spring brunch. Uh, the warmest I've ever, uh, Kevin, the warmest I've ever fermented 3470 at is 72 degrees. Um, still a great yeast. Still tasted good. Definitely was not lager quality at 72 degrees. But yeah, made a great tasting beer. Yeah, that'd be, I mean, something more akin to, like, Kolsch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I I think that might be, in fact, how you get Kolsch and the good fruity characteristics. Going for some new glasses? Yeah. All right. Ooh, that's got...
0: Some carbonation?
1: Some carbonation. All right, let's see what's going on there. But to get back to this beer, there are some really nice roasty notes to this. Um, In all honesty, I mean, the color has some good garnet, um, which... You know, could come from the malt or come from uh, boil in there. It's it's got a little bit of a porter vibe going on. It's a little bit cleaner than the porter is, but it's got some of those really good roasty notes that are still in there. I think it would be in the front, and I thought that I saw a piece of uh, tape on it, but that doesn't mean that it didn't get moved around. It was one of the bigger ones. John. It was uh, one of the bigger ones. It was a twenty-two at least. Yeah, so that's gotta be, that's gotta be in Ooh. The brownness of this is a little bit closer to what uh, the pale Doppelbachs are.
0: Yeah, that looks more Doppelbock.
1: That looks way more though. So we might be drinking a stout. So meh, or porter.
0: Yeah. Ooh. Let's jump into our topic number one. Um, our topic number one is going to be how to build a recipe, and I'm going to put this two ways. Pretty sure this is it.
1: Um. There's a really high fusel note that almost says has distillation. Tools. Nice. A um, lot thinner.
0: So let's start with some uh, ground yeah. rules when it comes to uh, uh, how to build a recipe. The first thing that we're going to. Um,
1: well, the, the first way that we're doing it are we doing it having a flavor or style in mind, or are we just going random stuff? Yeah. Flavor in a style. All did right. You not,
0: did you not read the, the outline in the name? Well, you didn't
1: say it, and then you're like the first thing that we need. Okay, he was getting there. I, yeah,
0: I jumped the uh, jumped the uh, beer on him. He did jump the bones. Um, if you have a flavor or style in, in mind, mind, the first thing that we want to talk about is uh, research helps, but more uh, research more the flavors you want, and don't overthink looking at other people's recipes. Uh, and I say that specifically because there are a lot of crappy recipes out there. There's a lot of people that look up, uh, you know, uh, Mac and Jack's clone or. I wanna, you know, whatever your local IPA is clone, and there's a lot of people that have just kind of designed their own online, and they may be close to the mark, they may be way off the mark, uh, but when you're looking up, don't look too much into the recipes. If you see some consistencies among a lot of people's recipes, maybe take that as a hint, Uh, but think more of the flavors that you're looking for, and that's where we're gonna start when it comes to building the recipes.
1: Perfect advice on that. Uh, Just because somebody's taste buds tell them that their clone of Mac and Jack's tastes like Mac and Jack's, even though it's literally black, uh, I've seen that before, uh, doesn't mean that it's actually a clone of the Mac and Jack's, or it doesn't mean that it's one that you like. You could like a little bit more hoppiness. You could like a little bit more roast, a little bit more sweetness out of it. So think about what it is that you like about that particular beer, And then try and mold it off of that, as well as using everybody's recipes as guidelines. If everybody is using a in particular malt, there's probably a reason why, because it goes into that style of beer or that beer in particular very
0: well. Um, So we're going to talk about two main resources that we like to use when it comes to uh, finding that flavor that you want and using those to build up the recipe. Uh, The first, which we've talked about quite a bit, is the BJCP uh, style guidelines. Currently, the, the most recent one is the 2015 style guidelines. Uh, before I go on, Soren Brockdorf, thank you so much for the super chat. We appreciate yeah.
1: that. I will uh, drink to that.
0: Cheers. Um, yeah, BJCP uh, has a list of all the known styles, and so if you know of a beer that's within a style, um, or not all the known styles, but a lot of the common ones that you'll see, yeah. um, they have everything from you know uh, appearance, aroma, flavor breakdowns to typical ingredients used, uh, traditional ingredients used, and even some commercial examples if you wanted to go out and try something in in the wheelhouse of the style that you're trying to brew. So that's a great resource. The next resource is the online software that we use to build all our recipes, which is Brewer's Friend. And the nice thing about Brewer's Friend is they take care of a lot of the calculations for you. And so if you're you know, unsure about what or how much of uh, something to use, um, it's not 100% accurate, especially because everybody's going to have different utilization depending on their systems. But it's a really good estimation of how much of everything you should be using, and especially when it comes to hops, when you should be using them.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to throw into there those two main resources. If you are trying uh, another good resource for that, especially if you're trying to remake one of your local breweries beers is t- to ask them. Yes. Uh, most brewers are pretty darn good about sharing uh, tips and techniques. Um, you know, there are a few people out there that have done things that are different and they want to keep their process uh little more proprietary they earned it they've worked for that but almost uh, all breweries are pretty darn good about answering questions about uh processes processes as well as ingredients and what they found to work for themselves uh as well as homebrew stores uh like us you can always send us questions on facebook about uh particular things or call in or instantograms where you are in the world. Uh, Beer is a really, really friendly community uh, comparatively to other words. For how competitive we are with each other, uh, it's all still really in good fun. And, you know, we tend to love each other
0: and, you know, homebrewers
1: pretty well. Unless, you know, you're a homebrewer who is still, you know.
0: If you're going to take advantage of us, then, uh, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Or you (laughs) spend 10 years making the same even though you may enjoy a bad recipe and then you're telling you know us we need to upgrade all of our stuff and you're like dude your beer is full of diacetyl so
0: yeah some things
1: Uh, you know but anyway we're still gonna help you out i mean we'll we'll think it we're not gonna sit we're gonna think it
0: but um one of the things that i'll add is if you a lot we do get a lot of messages from people on instagram and facebook and so if we don't respond um just know that we tried. <laughs> yeah. A lot of uh, times we, we get to something, but there's just too many uh, messages. And so we have to kind of prioritize which ones we uh, have time to jump into. But well, we always try to respond to every message that we get on Facebook and Instagram.
1: Don't email us, those will get lost. Yeah, we'll never I see promise that. you, it is going <clears> to <throat> be gone. Um, yeah, th- 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 great resources for that. Just always do keep in mind when you're talking to uh, people, even us, this is based all on uh, experiments and things that we have done or that they have done for their in particular system and things like that. So again, it's not gospel. It's a guideline.
0: I do want to go back a little bit to when you said ask the brewers when it comes to your local brewers. Uh, One thing to note is that those brewers will be thinking on their 10 barrel system and they do have system differences that you won't necessarily have. So if you are trying to replicate something that's done at a local brewery, you might have to be a little bit critical in how you think about how to apply their recipe and their techniques to your system on on your five gallon homebrew scale.
1: Again, this is a guideline, not a gospel on it.
0: All right, so we've laid the baseline. Here we go. uh, Let's go into how to build a recipe. This is assuming you've already done some research. This is assuming that you have Brewer's Friend open and you are plugging in all the numbers on Brewer's Friend. Uh, Step number one, pick your yeast first. This one's going to throw a lot of people off, but I'm adamant about it, pick your yeast first. The reason I'm saying this is there are a lot of people that get carried away in all the fun malts and new ingredients that they want you to try. Uh, but if you're trying to nail down a flavor and a style, pick your yeast first because that yeast is going to add certain flavors. And if you already added all the flavors you want with your malt and hops, you're going to add something a little extra with your yeast. And so you want to take uh, take into account what your yeast is going to be providing when you're building your recipe and then build backwards from there.
1: Great example of this uh, is actually something pretty simple a lot of uh, beginning brewers do is wit beer um, or saisons also in that. I'll throw that in there. That people thinking they can throw any Belgian yeast at something with wheat and coriander in it and call it a wit beer. If you ferment a wit beer with den you are going to get a very, very fruity, fruity beer. Comparatively, if you were going to uh, ferment that out with something like a high... Grav Trappist is going to be a little bit high note fruity, a little bit bubble gummy, a little bit spicy, but relatively clean versus going with the actual like wit beer yeast. That's just going to be that explosion of core or not coriander. I'm sorry, but uh, like
0: black, uh, black pepper, and black pepper, all clove, those, yeah, all those phenols that you, um, you know are typical of a proper wit yeast. And so thinking that you need to get all those from your grains of paradise and from your um, your orange peel and everything like that, uh, yeast still comes first.
1: You can do it, and your name would be Blue Moon just by adding, you know, orange juice to your beer and making people think that's what, <laughs> what beers taste like. But that's not it. it. A lot of that beer, while the spices are important, a lot of that beer in particular comes from yeast and what the yeast gives to it. So it is extremely important to have that.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of examples when it comes to even like IPAs, there's IPAs that if you ferment them, if you're starting with a fruitier yeast, let's say you're using dry hop or a good example is a lot of the quike yeasts. Um, those are going to add fruitiness. And so if you are, um, let's say one of your goals is to show off galaxy, for example, as a hop, um, start with picking your yeast, because if you're adding a relatively fruity re- yeast, you're going to be very, very confused as to what flavors are coming from yeast and what flavors are coming from hops. And so just something to think about, um, our number one thing when it comes to making great beer is always yeast is first. It's uh you know, you need to make sure yeast is healthy and you need to make sure you know which yeast you're using. But take care of your little and, babies. That'll and, go into our
1: into our part two a little bit, but you know, make make a yeast starter. Yeah. Do all uh, that all the time. Sundew uh, ferment, because we were just on that in West Coast IPAs and fruity yeast. Uh, Sundew fermented under pressure. Um, Sundew being, now we've experimented around a little bit with it. We haven't done a full ferment pressure with it. I would say that sundew is probably better just ripping it full out. Uh, Hot, aggressive, and fast. Being a Belgian strain, you're going to get more of those flavors uh, uh, the more free it's able to ferment and under pressure I think it'll subdue some of the uh sundew flavors uh question by yeast and the beast
0: uh so I don't
1: st- know that for sure step, no-
0: step number one was I agree with that I would not ferment it under pressure step number one was pick your yeast step number two when it comes to designing your recipe is know your target og and fg so this is important for a couple of reasons um When you know your target's original gravity and final gravity, that gives you an example of how much malt you're gonna add to it, It gives you an example of how you're gonna take care of your yeast, Um, and it also gives you an example of what yeast you should be working with, Um, because especially with the final gravity, you need to know how dry your beer is going to finish. So how boozy do you want your beer? How dry do you want it to finish? Know those things before jumping into uh, the malt, um, uh, building out your malt.
1: Why that's really important is because the dryness and the sweetness are really going to have huge flavor impacts. I mean, we know this, but you don't think about it. IPAs, for example, West Coast IPA finishes out super dry. So you're really getting punchy, punchy hot flavors coming from it in you know east coast or new england style ipas tend to finish out super sweet so you're really picking up juicy flavors instead of a lot of the bitter flavors in there and then we know there's a lot of other reasons for that too but those are big examples of that saison one of the reasons it's so delicious and drinkable and quaffable and awesome is because of how dry that beer is uh, so this is a really important thing. You can't have a proper Saison if you end up with a sweet beer. It, it, it is not the same thing.
0: Um, the last thing before even diving into malt at all is to know your color range. And so um, when you're building out any recipe, when you're building out any um, style of beer, you've started with picking out your yeast, and then you've figured out your target original and final gravity, how boozy and how dry you want it. And then you've got to know your color range before starting into malts. And then when it comes to picking out your malts, get to your color range with as few malts as possible first before editing.
1: Yes, Uh, 100%, I I agree with that.
0: So to do that, just start with the base malt that you know has the base flavor that you want. Uh, If it's a light beer, um, I'm almost always gonna go with Heidelberg, um, if it's a medium beer or a beer that leans on malt flavor, especially if it doesn't have a lot of that mid-range complexity um, by itself, I'm probably going to go with something like Halcyon. I love Halcyon as um, as a good base for any beers. that can be light enough to be in an IPA, but it's also complex enough to be in any sort of Belgian beers, any sort of Porter's Stouts. It's got that uh, that nice base layer that tastes mm. really good, no matter what you put on top of it. So if, let's, let's take a Porter, for example. If I'm make, making a Porter, I know I want... Uh, a nice malty base i want a little bit of sweetness off of my malt base and i know i'm probably going to want a little bit of chocolate malt in there so i'm probably going to sneak towards my color range with uh, my color range and my original gravity range with um, all halcyon and then some chocolate malts before jumping into tweaking for that for those middle range uh, uh, malts Um, so again that means I know a characteristic flavor that I want, which is that chocolate flavor from chocolate malts, and I know I want it relatively sweet, which is the base malt. So I started with that flavorful base malt, then I got my characteristic flavor from my chocolate malt, and then I'm going to add any ancillary flavors that I know I need to build out the middle range or darken it a little bit, maybe with some Carafa 3.
1: Yeah, adjusting using all of those specialty malts as adjustments is what this is breaking down to. You shouldn't be focusing. And this is one of the reasons that we get on the crystal so much is because people use crystal as a main malt and it is an adjustment malt. You get that nice color range, a good chocolate uh, with your chocolate malt and the halcyon. And then you take a little bit of C120 and adjust your beer, just a couple of points double darker and maybe a few points sweeter uh, on the finished beer for something like that. Again, using these specialty grains for what they're for, which is specialty circumstances, not as a main flavor component, even though they do add flavor components to it, they do, yeah. they're very important. It's not the main thing. There's a reason we only use four ounces or less of a dark roasted malt and a porter or stout instead of the whole darn thing being that.
0: And, the reason we teach people to make the recipes this way is because of how easy it is for and we understand the excitement, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of fun ingredients out there. But it's easy to you to jump in saying, oh, you know what's gonna be good in this porter? Uh, a little bit of care Munich's gonna be so good in this. Oh, I need aromatic in this. Oh, I'm gonna need Carafa 3, because Carafa 3's got that like less astringency, but it's also dark. Oh, I need my chocolate malt. Oh, I need a dark Munich for more middle. Like it's easy to get excited about all those different malts that are possible to put in beer and overdo it without really knowing what you're doing. And so, uh, if you're starting with a really good flavorful base malt, no matter what you do, your beer is going to be good. So yeast health, then base malt. And then if you want to add that middle layer, I would pick one or two different malts to throw in there. Maybe that C120, maybe an aromatic malt. Um, but those are going to be on the lighter end of the spectrum when it comes to how much you're adding into your beer and so you get a a more focused approach to what you're what you're building out and you're really focusing more on process i'm a huge proponent that if you have good processes especially if you're starting with good flavorful base malt your beer is going to be good no matter what
1: Yeah, and I would say you could honestly change your styles with the same recipe and changing base malt. Say, for example, if you want a super-duper dry, dry porter, you do Halcyon, pair that up with the chocolate malt. You want to take that into a little bit more of a sweet porter with just a little bit more biscuity as well as uh, cracker notes, switch that base malt out for something like Chevalier, and that's going to be a 100% different beer entirely and both of them are going to be amazing you're going to achieve things you didn't think you could just by changing out those base malts a lot of the time we get stuck into it needs to be two row base malt because that's what all the books say and you know that was good when that's all we had access to when your local homebrew store could only order from Viking or only order from Great Western, only order from Proximity, that was fine because you used what you could. But we don't have that anymore. We can use so many different ingredients that it it's almost silly not to change your base malts for things. Don't get stuck into it.
0: I want to say here we have, I'm, I'm going to bet, over 30 different base malts.
1: Uh, all right. So...
0: So you, yeah, got a lot, you got a lot of options. There. Uh,
1: I'm going to include into that. That's also taking <clears> into <throat> account that uh, we get in heritage malts a lot. Mm-hmm. So we probably, have, I think we actually do have like six to eight different types of pilsner. Yeah, And it's incredibly different, uh, I mean, incredible how different they all are from each other. Uh, for some beers, I would say, yeah, it doesn't really matter. If you want to make a good Pilsner, you're probably good using just about any Pilsner malt. If you want to make a difference between a Bavarian Pilsner and a Czech Pilsner, that might be one of the big places to start, is using Czech Pilsner for one, using, you know, an actual German Pilsner for the other. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I get you know got got on a tangent.
0: Tangent. All right. So before so we've talked about how to get into your malt range. Uh we've talked about uh the yeast. Let's go into before you even get into hops. Uh think about any techniques you're going to be using to build flavor. And so when I am talking about that, the things that I'm mentioning are going to be do I need to do a decoction mash? Do I need to do a long boil? Uh if it's an IPA, how am I treating my hops? Do I need to make sure that I've got a really good system for a whirlpool? um am I going to be using a hop back uh, what am I using to build flavor technique wise um cuz that's going to be really important when it comes to finishing out this recipe with hops
1: yeah uh, i'm going to <clears> throw out <throat> there really quick garage brewing uh, just stay tuned that is our second part on how to build a recipe and we'll get into uh what to do when resources are limited yeah all right So, yeah, uh, what techniques in there? Doppelbach is a perfect example for this. I'm always a huge proponent. Doppelbach should be extremely limited in your ingredients, and all of your color and flavor are coming from the Maillard reaction. That's, to me, a good Doppelbach. You can taste the Maillard coming out of it, and that's what is indicative of that style in particular. Uh, and that's your processes. I mean, that's the technique that you have to do it. Uh, moving on to like uh, New England IPAs, really having a great uh back or whirlpool method for hopping is going to be super critical to make really nice, big, big, juicy uh, New England, juicy, hazy IPAs.
0: Yeah, really, really important. Um, and so make sure you understand all those. We can't go into every single technique and why that's important in re- and recipe building. But it's really important uh, to know if you're going to have to add any extra techniques. So
1: or if you actually can make what you want to make with what you have. Yeah, exactly. If you're trying to make heady topper and you don't have a great way to do a hop back, you know, maybe it, just realize that, adjust your plans to uh, come out to have
0: something that's going to be a great beer. If it's just a slightly different beer, yeah. Yeah. So focus on that whirlpool or that back end hopping when it comes to those, which, brings us to our last topic when it comes to um, building out your recipe. Uh, Pick your hops to match and place your hops where you want them in your recipe for aroma and then flavor and then adjust for IBUs. So never start with, all right, so my 60-minute edition is going to be five ounces of Chinook or whatever. You never start with the 60-minute edition. Always start with where you're going to want your aroma and flavor hops to go. Uh, Example for uh, the New England IPA would be I'm going to want eight ounces of my hops to go into my whirlpool, or I'm going to want four ounces to go into my whirlpool, two ounces to go into a hop bag and save two ounces for dry hop. Then you know where you're getting all your aroma and flavor from. And when it comes to actually wanting any sort of IBUs, do you want it to be more aggressive? Do you want it to be hoppier, like a West Coast, New England hybrid for some reason? Um, then you can start adding in some boiling additions, even for a West Coast IPA. I'm always going to go, uh, I want that Columbus, you know, Bite, but I want that you know kind of pungence from a five-minute edition, a little bit of that combo flavor aroma, um, and then maybe a twenty-minute edition for a little bit of just flavor um, and some bitterness. And then if I need to add any for a sixty-minute edition, maybe I will, but it's not uh, at that point going to be as important.
1: Uh, it's one of the things that I say all the time that IBUs don't exactly mean what we think they mean. Uh, it literally is International Bittering Unit. So it's just how much bitterness is in something, not how much bitterness you're tasting out of something. That would be perceived bitterness. Uh, greatest example is coffee. Black cup of coffee is super bitter. Add some cream and sugar into there. And it's has the same IBU level, but it's no longer bitter tasting. And realizing that too, if you want to, in a West Coast IPA, if you want to have bitter pungency to your, uh, sorry, bitter. That was wrong. If you want to have more or better pungency to your hops and more aggressiveness in there, that may be drying your beer out, not adding more IBU. If you have less sugars, you perceive bitterness far more and that will make you, that will make the hops taste better. I get, well, not better. That will make you taste the hops more.
0: You'll, you'll, yeah. You'll, you, the bitterness will come out a little bit more than that in that c- scenario. Um, even when it comes to uh, things like a doppelbock, for example, um, I'm going to take care of my flavor and aroma by saying I don't need any. And then if I want to adjust my IBUs, quote-unquote IBUs, um, with just a high alpha hop, I'm probably just going to add a small amount early on in the boil. Um, with a Czech Pilsner, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to make sure I have my sauce where I want it for flavor and aroma on the back end. And then I'm going to see how much more saws, or I might switch up to Magnum just so I use less hops, um, I need for to get that 35 IBUs that I want in a chick chick Pilsner. So um, start with the flavor and aroma first. Yeah.
1: I, I, that basically boils down to use the hops for what you actually want to use them for, and don't be a slave to a number.
0: That's right. Um, all right. So that's it for building a recipe. If you know what style you're going to do, let's say... Let's say you are somebody who has their own stock of malt or hops, and um, you don't know what to do with it. You've got an extra two pounds of Red X, for example, and you don't know what to do with it, and so you wanna build a recipe backwards from an ingredient. Um, Best place to start there is figure out what flavor your ingredient has and how you can highlight that in your beer.
1: Yeah, this uh, like Peter said earlier, this is something that we do all the time. Uh, sometimes people get excited and order in new yeast or hops or um, adjuncts or malts, and we have no idea what to do with them, what they are, and nobody's buying them. So now we need to make a beer out of it. Um, what would, uh, What is it? Stout malt, I think, uh, I or... <clears throat> yeah yeah we got the ireland stout malt Malt. and that was one of the things that like when we got it in uh we told everybody about it nobody really seemed interesting to you uh, interested in using it right away so we're like okay well what can we do with this i mean it's in the name so obviously we (laughs) made a dry stout with it uh but it's one of those things like here's our ingredient now what is this ingredient going to be delicious in? let's let's start there and build a recipe off of
0: it. Yeah. A lot of people will see do, uh, they'll, they'll have a style that they want to make and they see, they'll see that they have an ingredient that uh, they want to try to fit into the style. Just work backwards from the ingredient. So uh, let's take the example of, let's take the example of Red X. Um, Red X is a very, very versatile malt, but it's going to have some Munich type maltiness to it. And so you work backwards from what do I have? that's malty. Um, well, you could do Uh, a red IPA if you wanted to, because it's not that malty, but it's a nice color. You could go into any of the Vienna lager or amber style colors. Uh, You can work backwards from that malt uh, and then just make a good good beer that way.
1: Yeah, uh, so this is one thing uh, also... Uh, jumping into that a little bit, uh, maybe you have a specific idea of what you wanted out of the beer, but you only have certain ingredients. So you wanted to make an IPA, but you have a bunch of red X in there and you need to use it. Making a red IPA is a great idea for that. Um, garage brewing, uh, brought something up this is the question i mentioned earlier about your local homebrew store having limited or rotating stocks of things uh there are times specifically yeah there are times that uh, we can't get specific yeast in for a reason or another Uh, and it's one of those things that i mean people are so dead set they would rather not brew beer than just adjust their recipe a little bit to brew a fantastic beer within a you know, an ingredient they may not have used before.
0: Or if you're wanting to work backwards, you can work backwards from the yeast too. If you don't have a set style that you're trying to make, which I know a lot of you do before you go to a homebrew store, you're like, I want to make this stout or this porter. But if you look at the uh, selection of yeast you have available to you, uh, you can definitely work backwards from there. So let's take the example of an IPA. You want to make a, um, you know, uh, a West Coast IPA, and they don't have Chico strain there, but they do have something like, Uh, dry hop or citrus uh, or even juice something that's going to produce some more fruity flavors well you could say i know my yeast is going to produce some fruitiness so i can adjust my recipe uh, to be a little bit drier let's take out any middle malts or let's go for a lighter base malt or something like that Uh, and uh, i might not eat as much fruitiness out of my hops maybe i want to double down on those and roll with it or maybe i want to switch a little bit of mosaic for a little bit of columbus for example so you can work backwards from yeast in that same scenario
1: yeah and that's a really big important thing to uh, remember that was actually one thing um i mean i'm pretty good about it but peter helped me out when i was still a home brewer is you know some i hear about all the new fun crazy hops and like i think moto echo is a new hop coming out at that time and i know i dated myself uh but going into the shop and like, oh, I need to make a Motueka IPA. Like I need to use this hop and then being a responsible businessman and not ordering $50 pound hops, it's like, well, we don't have that, but we do have things along the same, or along the, uh, same uh, flavor line. So how about if we just do this and that, and then you can get about the same flavor, but have the flexibility to actually do that and accept it. I mean, just walking out because that one rare ingredient uh, or you just came the day before the order comes and your specific ingredient isn't there, you know, adjust your recipe to that uh, and be able to look at it and go, Oh, again, if I'm using juice in a West coast IPA, I'm going to get a lot more fruity flavors. So maybe I don't need the uh, one minute edition or the dry hops in that, and I'll take out this Carapils because it doesn't belong in there anyway.
0: Obviously. Everyone has uh,
1: that. <laughs> you know, so uh, garage brewing, uh, you know, or just walking in there and uh, having an idea <clears> of where you want to go. I want to make a hoppy beer and then go into your homebrew shop and look at it and going, okay, cool. Well, Ask them we- what
0: yeast is fresh, what hops are fresh. I mean, that's the best way to go. If yeah. you start with fresh ingredients, you're going to make better beer.
1: Definitely 100%. Along uh, with that, having ingredients and needing to use them. You bought hops, and I know this is the case actually for myself. Uh, I bought hops a long time ago. They're probably about six or seven years old now. You don't know what to do with them. you know. But figuring out uh, different things to do with them. Hops like that have basically lost most of their flavor. They have bittering power, and then they have antibacterial properties. So what needs that? Barrel-aged lambics. Cool. Well, now I can make my lambic with these hops that have were basically going to be chucked uh, and have a really good product coming out of it. Um, Or you could
0: plan ahead. That's the other option. If you want to just go ahead and – I mean, honestly, when it comes down to, uh, hey, I don't have a certain – I don't have the certain ingredients available to me at my homebrew store to make a certain recipe. If it's a recipe you're dead set on making, a lot of times, I don't know about every homebrew store, but a lot of times a Humber store will actually be able to order in certain quantities of them all. And you might end up paying a little bit more for those because they're not you know, a common stock. But if you really wanna make that recipe, uh, if you plan your recipe ahead, Buy a week or two. You can probably get those ingredients in and still make that exact same thing. The hard thing is if it's a yeast company the company that they don't carry. Um, but as much as I hate saying order online, there are a lot of yeast places that will be able to ship um, yeast.
1: It's better to give the money to your <clears throat> local guys first because you know we're trying to put kids through school. Uh, but. If you have to, ordering it online is 100% uh, fine on that. That's a great resource as well. Um, I did notice that somebody in here was talking about uh, yeast manufacturers providing good in- info about their stuff. Almost all of them do. If you get a hold of them, most of the local homebrew shops will be able to get a hold of uh, most of the information that you need right away. Almost all of the yeast companies that we've worked with at least have been incredibly good about giving out all their information from batch numbers and things like that uh, to yeast viabilities, all the good stuff.
0: Yeah. And ask your homebrew store. They probably have some information for you. When it comes to, honestly, just knowing all your yeast, it's uh, important to do. and. Really, really learning all your yeast does just come from practice and a, a lot of brew days. So, uh, But a good place to start is always asking people like a homebrew shop owner or um, just the company themselves.
1: Oh, yeah. I just saw that. It was the comment right above. Kevin uh, was, oh, was asking... How do you know what yeast strains taste like? Um, You know, and that is almost all yeast companies will have flavor profiles of everything. It doesn't mean you always taste what they say you taste in there. Um, Some yeast profiles, I definitely don't get what they tell you is in there, but a lot of people do. Also, great way to do this is, uh, especially if you have a local brewery or breweries that love to experiment, is going actively ask what they fermented it with, what the uh, yeast they fermented beers with, and then taste them.
0: Yeah, a lot of them have their own proprietary yeast, but uh, um, a lot of them don't. A lot of them use, like, a White Labs or a White Yeast strain or an Imperial strain. Yeah, or experiment. Let's jump on, because I feel like we've been on that topic for way too long. Sorry. Um, So topic number two, uh, we're going to call this the Ten Commandments of Homebrew, because Jesus' second birthday is today. Um, So here's some stuff to do. Uh, basically these are just going to be tips. We're going to roll through a couple of these. We're not going to do a lot of them. There's not even 10 of them, but these are, these are your, your Hail Marys when it comes to making good beer. Peter tripped walking out of the office and uh, broke two of them. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, so uh, 10 commandments of homebrewing. Number one that I'm going to go with, because I think a lot of people don't think about this a lot, and I see it a lot with homebrew setups. If it looks bad or smells bad, don't trust it.
1: Uh, I'm going to word this a little bit different. Trust your face. Yeah. Like your face is the best thing for judging beer. And I literally mean your eyes, your nose, your mouth. If it looks bad, it tastes or smells bad, tastes bad, dump it. If it smells bad
0: first, maybe don't try and drink it. Uh, if it looks bad and smells bad, definitely don't Yeah, just get rid of it. And it doesn't even just go for beer. I see a lot of people that are like, they have homebrew equipment. Let's say a a cooler mash tun that's been, you know, they had that one time that they brewed with it and then just didn't wash it out for four months and then tried to re clean it out. And it's always got that smell. Um, and every beer after that kind of tastes a little bit off. Uh, that's probably some really funky flavors seeping out of the plastic into your mash. So don't trust that plastic mash tun because it's probably absorbed a lot of stuff. Uh, if your, your, your kettle ball valve is looking like it's got some grody's in it and you have an immersion chiller, uh, and then you chill down in your kettle and then you use that ball valve to shoot your beer into your fermenter. That's probably a bad idea. If your ball valve looks gross, don't trust it.
1: Yeah. Uh, everything in that from your beer to your equipment.
0: Um, let's skip ahead to, uh, number six. Cause what if your beer looks or smells bad, but you're not sure when in doubt, Brett it out. Brett, not bread. That's a really funny story. There was a, somebody who, I, I, don't, I don't remember if they commented on a YouTube video or they Maybe sent us a message, that. but they were they were, they were low-key mad. They were like, hey, I thought you said bread instead of Brett. And so I threw some bread into one of my patches of beer, and it did not work. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, actually, Daniel Oops. had a good comment. If it smells like farts and what he means on that, if it smells like sulfur, egg farts in particular. uh, That's actually a compound that can be very easily driven off by um, off-gassing, running CO2 through it, or just waiting for the yeast to carry it out. This is a little bit different. Uh, If you have a beer, it doesn't necessarily smell like poison, but it's definitely not great. Brett, has yeah. a good chance of taking care of it or turning it into something delicious.
0: Um, on the sulfur notes, we have number four, thou shall not forget to skibub. Uh, skibubbing is a very powerful technique that works at multiple stages. It can work for oxygenation. It can work for, uh, 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 what's it called? Strip. It's not stripping. CO2. Rousing? No, not rousing. Purging, cleansing. Purging. What's it? Uh, when you, yeah. when you Scrubbing. CO2 scrubbing. scrubbing.
1: That's actually what uh, would help with the uh, smelly egg parts.
0: Yeah, get a lot of CO2 bubbles C- down in there, turbulate your everything, and then uh, the CO2 will scrub out some of that sulfur, which is good.
1: Skabubbing is named uh, after the sound that it makes. Skubub.
0: Yeah. Of CO2
1: running through your fermenter and basically stirring everything up.
0: Also named after St. Regis scub- Stein, um the patron saint of oxygen. Well, not oxygen, CO2. Of uh, CO2 well there's there's o2 in co2
1: you are right on that <laughs> just don't run o2 through your your beers post once you've pitched yeast
0: yeah that well right.
1: I, unless it's like a high alcohol and don't got, go down that <laughs> rabbit hole it's meant to be co2 use a kebab with
0: co2 not o2 unless it's early on in fermentation uh, yeast is your best friend that's number two Yeast, yeast is your best friend. The number one thing that you can do to take care of your, your beer is uh, is take care of your yeast. If your yeast is healthy, if your yeast is happy, your beer is probably going to be good. Yeah, Everything a, else doesn't really matter. Make a yeast starter. <clears throat> make a yeast starter. Like we say. Skubub with O2. <laughs>
1: with O2. On a yeast starter, <laughs> definitely. Uh, yep. Keep it simple. Like that's huge. That's something we've been preaching all day right here. Uh, keep it simple. You can way over complicate things and you're gonna get a complex beer in the end and that's not always a good thing.
0: Yep. Uh, You want to be able to taste your recipes and you want to be able to taste the flavors you want out of your recipes and not weigh down, you know, weigh down your palate with a lot of heavy, distracting flavors. There's a time and a place for some of those flavors, but most of the time when you want a direct flavor in your beer, just brew that and make sure your processes are good because a lot of people just make bad beer and then there's 30,000 ingredients and they're like, oh, I think it might have been this this Munich 20 that made my beer taste bad. And I'm like, "Mm hmm. Maybe try making like a like a two malt beer and see how that tastes.
1: Or could it could just be that you're washing your equipment out with soap.
0: Yeah. Don't uh, do Ko that. Brewing, thanks for the great info on a weekly basis. Thank you, Ko Brewing. We Thank appreciate you. the super chat.
1: Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> all right, you skipped around. Uh, where are we? Be patient. Be patient. I'm going to skip actually into that one. Number seven, be patient. This is a huge thing in this. There are so many people, and most homebrewers know this, but beer does not happen instantly. Uh, And great beer does not happen instantly unless you're using Um, Quike. But wait things out i don't know how many times people will come in and i'm not trying to be mean to anybody or call anybody out here at all but how many times people come in and they'll be like well my beer bubbled really hard for two days and then it stopped is it broken should i dump it <laughs> like did my first question well have you uh tasted it or taken a gravity reading well no but the bubble stopped like uh, come on how do you know it's bad then Well, you know, the bubble stopped. They're eventually going to stop. Uh, It may not be normal for your beer to ferment out in two days, uh, again, unless you're using Quike.
0: Yeah. But that doesn't
1: mean it's bad. It just means you need to test it and see if it's good. And if it's good, drink it
0: that even goes to actually uh like tasting your final product let's say it's three four weeks out um i've had customers come in with a couple of bottles of beer they're like oh i dumped the rest of this beer but i just wanted to give you a couple bottles to see if you could tell me you know if it's gonna like how it's, like what i did wrong like what's wrong with it i dumped the rest of it already <laughs> and we taste one of them we're like well this uh um this is young and it's gonna be really great in about three months and they're like wait what yeah. i dumped the rest of it and so i like you know, we tell oh. them, I'm going to hold on to this other bottle for about three months, and then we'll taste that bottle in three months, and it'll be delicious.
1: We have that bottle sitting in the fridge. This is actually somebody in the... And to be fair, to be fair... To for be them, fair. Uh, They actually did get a Brett infection. They've never had a Brett infection before, and they're like, it just it was a little bit funky and then it lost flavor and we just thought it's bad here. Try it. I'm like, Oh no, this is great. This is like middle Brett fermentation. How much more do you have? Cause I want it. And they're like, well, we put it down the drain. And <laughs> like, Oh man. I mean, and, and you know, for them, it's a little bit of a different case because that really was something that they really knew nothing about. And Brett's a little different, but they're literally, I think I just saw yeast and beast in here. My, bearded fermentation stuff is it infected Technically, that might actually be a 100 percent real question that we have gotten before uh and it's just be patient with your be patient with <clears throat> your beer and be kind to your beer you know don't slosh it around everywhere put sunshine through it just to see if it's infected let it do its thing
0: um Taste out of a proper glass. So when it comes to actually experiencing your homebrew, when it comes to knowing what flavors you've actually created, make sure you're tasting out of a proper glass. If you put your homebrewed beer into an ice cold shaker pint, I will probably punch you in the nose. (laughs) Don't be surprised. It's just going to happen. You know, uh,
1: I would like to. I would think about it. I would probably visualize doing it or maybe just plucking you right in the throat. Probably won't do it because that's rude and you're enjoying a beer and, you know, you deserve to enjoy your beer. You just aren't yeah. going to enjoy it as much as you should, damn no. it.
0: I don't know if they deserve it at that point.
1: Well, uh, it it depends. If you <clears throat> demanded to drink it out of a straight-side shaker pint and receive less beer because, you know, you do, uh, yeah, you don't deserve to enjoy a beer at that point.
0: Number eight, thou shall not adulterate. I don't know what I... I don't know what I, what I meant by that, but I wrote it down. Uh, you know, I, I actually,
1: I'll go into this. I think I got a good one on there. Don't mess with your beer too much. It's yes. kind of along with that be patient thing, but this is different. Don't over mess with your beer. There's actually a funny comment in here. You guys thought you were going to be funny. Now I'm going to use it. Uh, <laughs> taking a gravity sample and adding it back into your beer. That, just don't. That's not That's Drink it. It's delightful. That is a treat for you for making beer. Um, also, you know, I mean, doing other things, just over necessarily handling your beer. I know there are people out there that take gravity sample readings every day and don't do that. You know how long your beer should ferment. You don't need to take a gravity sample every darn day. Uh, you should take them to make sure it's going good, but you know, you, you don't need to add a whole bunch of extra stuff. Excuse me. You don't need to add a whole bunch of extra stuffs to your beer. You know, if you have pretty good water, but you're like, oh, man, I need to be exactly Burton-upon-Trent water to make this really nice ESB, or mild, and you're just over-fiddling with your
0: beer. Don't do it. Um, Daniel asks, Peter, would you settle for a red solo cup? You know, I would take a red solo cup over a frosted shaker pint any day.
1: Oh, do you know what? I wanted to slap you for that statement. We hadn't even brought up frosted shaker pints. Gross. Alright, here's... uh, Actually, I'm calling it uh, Stan Soapbox with uh, Timothy, because, you know, (laughs) it should be Stan Soapbox.
0: Stan Soapbox with Timothy. Don't
1: freeze your glasses. Like, okay, so a lot of people don't realize why this is, and it's a myth that's been fed to us for a long time, and you see shows like Bar Rescue that say you should serve beer freezing, which is true if you're drinking an American adjunct lager from the big three because then you can't taste
0: it. Even then, a frosted glass, I mean, I get Ah. chilled glass, but a frosted glass, the reason that you know the big boys tell you to drink out of a frosted glass is to waste beer on tap. That's why they do it. It makes bars waste beer because it has a nucleation site that causes it to foam, and that makes it so that they cannot pour a proper beer without pouring a lot of it over the side of the beer, and so... The big boys, the anheuser Bushes, they sell more beer because most of their beer is being wasted.
1: A lot of wasted beer. What that basically means is ice makes beer foamy, and there's ice on the inside of your glass. Now, to go along with this, because most places do not have a separate freezer for their glasses, as well as at home when you're freezing your glasses, everything that's in that cooler or freezer is now attached to the side of your glass, so your frozen waffles, your frozen fish that's in there, your fish is now that there are some particles that are in the air, they're now frozen to the side of the glass, and you are now drinking it, and that is adulterating your beer. Do not do that. It's in the Ten Commandments.
0: Don't. Thou shalt not adulterate your beer.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, it, yes, it's one of those things that don't – freeze your glasses we have been spoon fed this in commercial propaganda for so many years by the big guys and it's literally just a play so they can make you waste beer and sell more it's not good
0: um somebody asked if we can make a quick clip of the frozen glass argument so he can show to every boss he's ever worked for uh ryan if you're watching do that
1: yes ryan definitely so that's what we got for uh, on the papers. Um, let's, do the, let's do the, the
0: Doppelbach thing and open up the Doppelbach thing.
1: Let's open up the Doppelbach thing.
0: The, the Eisbach thing. The
1: Eisbach thing. I uh, really hope this is the one we're drinking. I am getting some notes that I think it's probably accurate.
0: Uh, I think it's Eis. It also, it also smells like it's got a level of oxidation, i.e. barrel-aged oxidation. Um, I get some warm woody notes as well. So I'm hoping this is the right one.
1: Hoping this is the right one. It's got some
0: subtle fruitiness to it. It's got a high... A high fennel that I'm not, that's oh, a
1: little bit green. Uh, this is, a uh, sorry to interrupt you, this is the thing. Garage Brewing. Uh, refractometer calculations never match your hydrometer readings, even with calculators, depending on when you take them. Hydro, refractometers are awesome as long as uh, you're using them in proper places. After the boil, uh, sometimes the hot particles can actually lift or compress, or not compress, but lift the glass a little bit so it can give you false readings. And once there is alcohol in it, a refractometer is useless. Don't there, use it.
0: There are, like, calculators that uh, account for the uh, the alcohol, but it also doesn't account for everything else in the beer, so it's, like, it's it's half okay. Yeah. But just use a hydrometer. Just use a hydrometer. Uh, like an adult. Once there's
1: alcohol in it, just use a hydrometer. You're going to, holy oh. Noly um, you're gonna uh, be a whole lot better on that
0: uh, all right I was gonna say this is toppy this yeah
1: yeah it looks like it uh, has has that. Uh, Or a little bit extra hoppiness. Sorry, I'm reading some things, too, as well in there. Uh, Somebody asked about Heel Melon hops earlier. I love Heel Melon hops. Uh, Using those in any classic light hop style uh, of Belgium or Germany, I think, is appropriate. Oh, this is super super, uh, chalky, super bicarbonate. Uh, I could get that, actually. Um, The Heel Melon is going to be very... melony, bright, fruity uh, flavors on it, but it still has a really nice, fine light spice. Um, you can use it in big hopped beers, but you're it's not the best in that. Using it for something like a Saison's, Grisette, um even going into a uh, more hoppy pilsner would be delicious.
0: All right, let's go into this recipe that was used uh, in said Eisbach. It is, uh, I'm guessing, a bigger recipe. 10 gallons something like that it doesn't really say
1: well yeah I 20 say, gallons so it might be
0: it's 20 gallons total so uh the recipe was 25 pounds of german munich so uh that doesn't have the percentages correctly 25 pounds of german munich uh, 4.5 of melanoidin 0. 0.27 of british chocolate 0. 0.9 of c120 uh, 0.9 of c60 point 3.6 of c20 uh, 0.45 pounds of special b um 20 pounds of golden promise So that's a total of a little over 50 pounds of grain. That's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, Oh, so I guess the hops aren't that much. The hops are very minimal for that size then. So um, this was a chalky beer. He doesn't have, oh, he has the, that explains the additions being so high. It's not that chalky. It's a medium water profile, um, balanced water profile with low um, chlorides and high sulfates. Um, Relatively alkaline, but not super alkaline. so I would say this is in a classic more of a classic German uh, German uh water range. Um mm-hmm. this was rested at um 104, 122, 145, 161 and 175. And uh, the hops were added in two different stages. They were Magnum, middle Mittelfrüh and middle Mittelfrüh. So three different stages. Yeah. Uh, um overall, so that's a more simple recipe than I thought. Uh, obviously a lot of the uh, little malts that I'd probably try to simplify. But uh Um, Knowing that it's a 20-gallon batch, it's a lot less hops than I thought and uh, not as hard of water as I thought.
1: It's still kind of in there. You can test it. Uh, Pamela, this is a great question. How do you classify a farmhouse ale that isn't a Saison? Uh, Easy, because farmhouse ale is not a style. Farmhouse ale is any ale that its style guidelines originated inside a farmhouse. So if the beer started in the farmhouse, go for it, which includes things like English miles, English small beers, Oktoberfest, or English barley wines. That includes all of the uh, fr- most of the French beers uh, between French lagers, beer de Garde, beer de mars. Most beers, except for Trappist beers, originating in Belgium um, and a few others. All the Quikes. So that's the literal answer: is anything that developed in a farmhouse is a farmhouse ale because it's not a real style
0: how we use it today um is mostly just with with anything with a wild yeast so if it's got saison yeast in it that's kind of in that range it's got brett in it for sure if it's saison and brett bland for sure um if it's got any any of the quikes if it's got the lithuanian farmhouse yeast if you ferment your own wild ale um, Mm -hmm. those would all kind of fall in that same same guideline where category
1: where we use it today is basically to describe things that are super funky but without the acid component to it. So when Brett goes funk, but it doesn't go acid, again, with all of those other yeast. So there we go. Back to this <clears> beer. <throat> Sorry.
0: Um, overall, this beer is uh, it's good. It's got a little bit of a high phenol that I... Um, it's a little bit like it's like ancillary it's like a side note to me it's not doesn't seem to like really fit in um and i'll tell you the oxidation level it makes it a little bit uh, a little bit flat for me um but overall it's got it's got that fruitiness of a proper eyes it's got the alcohol of a proper eyes um it's got a lot of great flavor built in i'm just trying to be nitpicky i don't want to get those two um, those two flavors figured out mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> yeah i uh, would
0: say that the oxidation might have actually come from the icing process depending on how it was iced that's What I was gonna say, if it was not
1: a uh, closed keg to keg transfer, then there was probably some oxidation picked up in that.
0: Yeah, so if you did it in, if you did it in a keg and actually had some sort of a filter screen over your dip tube in your keg, and then did a keg to keg um, that left behind all the ice slurry, that'd probably be the better way to go. If it was a scoop off of ice, like traditional, like a lot of ice box traditionally were done, um, that's an easy way to get oxygen in there, especially since it's so cold and oxygen's going to. Um, dissolve more rapidly and that doesn't necessarily mean that it was oxidized on tap at your house or wherever you had it but it could have been oxidized as it warmed up being shipped here because of the oxygen that was dissolved in there from the icing process
1: yeah um it's a good beer though yeah so uh
0: yeah, I enjoy
1: it in there. I mean, uh, honestly, for me, I probably could use a lot more Maillard into it, uh, but that's a thing in Doppelbox that I always look for is that super huge, nice, caramely deliciousness.
0: Super Maillardiness. Yeah. So good. Uh. Burp.
1: Uh, yeah. So... Yeast and the beast. Of course, you did. Uh, even if you brew a New England and a farmhouse, it's not a farmhouse style because it didn't originate there. Go talk to Hetty Topper. Yeah. Or the alchemist. The alchemist.
0: But if you uh, if you make a new style that's right like a New England IPA and you do it inside of a farmhouse, then yeah, you're good. Oh good uh, yeah. Go.
1: Buy a farmhouse and then uh, open ferment a New England style IPA in there, and there you go.
0: I could see that being really good.
1: Uh, it could be as long as like you got the hops so they didn't oxidize. I think that would be the biggest challenge.
0: Yeah, you need some ascorbs. You need some heavy early on activity. What I'd probably do is it'd be like a some pseudo bitterness and then a huge dry hop. Oh. And so it'd be like the yeah. Italian Pilsner version of of a farmhouse or Wild Ale style.
1: So we're gonna take the uh, open fermenter <clears throat> from downtown and do that experiment. Okay. Yeah, okay. We'll let you know how it turns out. That's how I would do it, honestly, is mostly open ferment. And then when you uh, switch to the uh, closed ferment, that's where you put all of your hops in.
0: If you are local, let me know if you have a farmhouse. Um, we'll meet you sometime in the summer. And we'll make it happen, Cap'n.
1: Uh, if you drink a New England IPA next to a damp stack of hay, almost, you need to throw a horse blanket on top of the damp stack of hay and then drink it on that, and now you have a farmhouse.
0: Yeah, and you also need a goat to lay on your lap. Mm, Yes,
1: and sometimes, you know, headbutt you.
0: Mm. Just for funsies.
1: Just for fun.
0: Could you explain quickly how to ferment under pressure an IPA? Um, so my strategy for fermenting under pressure IPA, I actually open ferment almost always. Um are not open ferment, but I do a, a, a ferment that's not closed. It's not under pressure. But uh, what I'll do is I'll go through a regular fermentation. And then after dry hop, um, let's assume it's a New England IPA, because that's the most common one to do this with. Um, after dry hop at High Krausen, um, I will close the um, fermenter off. And that's when I will spun. So it'll be um, closed off at that point. It probably has 20-ish pounds to go or points to go, which uh, is over-pressurized for most vessels depending on the headspace. And the easiest way to do that is with a spunding valve that you just set to 15 to 18 PSI, uh, meaning that that fermenter will naturally naturally release that pressure some pr- somewhere between 15 and 18 PSI.
1: That is a great way to do it. Uh, answer <clears throat> Druncula there, sulfate chloride for Vienna
0: sulfate to chloride for a Vienna lager. Um, both of them are gonna be relatively light, honestly, a lot of, with the Lama, a lot of German styles. It's gonna be leaning heavy to the chlorides, which means after malt is uh, added, um, since malts are gonna naturally have a higher chloride level anyways. Um, after the malt is added, uh, it's gonna be higher on the chlorides flavor-wise, but with a Vienna lager specifically, I also like to make sure I have sodium. So um, round estimates, I'd say probably 40 to 50 parts per million of chloride 20 to 30 parts per million of sodium and 20-ish, maybe 20 to 30 parts per million of sulfate. Not a ton. I might even go lower on the sulfates, like sub-20.
1: This is actually a good one from KO. Is it a myth that lager yeast should be slowly ramped down a few degrees every day after completion to reach lagering temps?
0: Sort of, but uh, yes and no. Um, So my strategy is always a hold back down at lager fermentation temps. So I'll go... Uh, I mean, I can crash down from, let's say 68 as a VDK rest down to about 48. Um, but I do want that conditioning time just in case there's, uh, any other, uh, let's say acetaldehyde or, um, uh, you know, maybe the VDKs need a couple, a little bit more time to, um, to condition. And so, I will. Uh, I'll hold at about 48 degrees for four or five days before crashing the rest of the way down at lagering temperatures, those 36 degree temperatures. So I won't crash from 72 or, or from 68 down to 36. I'll have a middle spot.
1: Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So it's kind of basically doing. Do you need to step it down every single day till it gets there? No. Just make sure you do hit a rest in between your VDK to your actual lagering temperatures in there. Um, there's a, most of the reason that that's done is tradition. There are always reasons for tra- tradition, but doing something just because it is tradition is very dangerous. Uh, yeast and the beast. Why not just ferment lagers at ale temps under pressure? Why not? Depends on, depends on the yeast. Well, that too. Um, but that's honestly how uh, a lot of big guys create... S- Uh, lagers that are fermented much faster than they should be is uh, doing it under pressure a lot of the time while it's under pressure the yeast will uh, he's enjoying this uh, a lot of the times while the yeast is under pressure, it will, it ferments uh, a lot in the same way that it does when it's cold or at
0: um,
1: lager, or lager temperatures.
0: Yeah, so um, yeasts that I would feel very comfortable doing that with are 3470, uh, Cable Car, Harvest even. Um, yeasts I might feel comfortable with are just like the Pilsner lager strain. And a couple that I might not feel comfortable with are the Raquel strain um, and okay. the Czech Pils strain.
1: Definitely. Those are a lot more fine and finicky <clears throat> strains. Um,
0: thank
1: G- you. Yeah. G- young. Young. Oh, wow. Thank you for the uh, super chat while we absolutely murder your name.
0: Mr. Hio. Thank you. For there the we super go.
1: Ch- <laughs> thank you for the super chat. We appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So not all uh, loggers can be fermented under pressure successfully. But it is a great way to go if you don't have the option to do uh, actual temperature control.
0: Can uh, diacetyl be a problem while pressure fermenting? And if so, uh, how can it be avoided? Um, time and time and temperature. So with pressure fermenting at a warm temperature, diacetyl is going to be less of an issue. Basically, it has to do with the yeast re-metabolizing. Uh, something like DMS or sulfur are going to be more issues because um, yeah. those are two things that can volatilize, meaning an open system will allow them to escape. Um, But diacetyl, that just needs to be re metabolized. It gets uh, reduced down to uh, uh, acetaldehyde and then further, no, it gets oxidized to acetaldehyde and then reduced back down to uh, ethanol. So,
1: yeah. Uh- <clears throat> So uh, to combat things like that, I mean, if you have too much sulfur in there, you can definitely uh, do some off-gassing that will help with that. Uh, Also, uh, even though you're pressure fermenting, uh, if you want to do that nice VDK rest, uh, you can release that pressure into the end. That way the yeast thinks it's warm again. Um, And Mm -hmm. a couple of other tips and tricks to uh, get away with that.
0: But mostly just don't use a sulfur-producing yeast when it comes to New England IPAs because you want all that um, hop- oils to stay in there yeah and so if you're off-gassing if you're skabubbing then you are allowing those volatile oils to escape
1: uh <clears throat> s-corbs does it reduce match mash ph it has a potential to if you add too much but if you add too much you'll know because you just literally put like a bucket of it in there.
0: You'll be able to, it'll, it'll reach flavor threshold before it reaches doing anything to your mash pH threshold. So no, um, it, yeah, it's, it's an acid, but it's a relatively weak acid. And so it's not going to have as big of an impact as like lactic or phosphoric.
1: Yeah. So, uh, uh,
0: oh. <clears throat>
1: We're getting some comments in there. Oh, would you,
0: would you choose different hops for biotransformation hopping compared to late dry hopping? Absolutely. One, The number one thing that I'm going to look at with biotransformation hopping is the total oil content. I am not going to waste my money biotransforming with Nelson Savin, which has a tiny, tiny total oil content. I'll use that as a late edition dry hop or I'll use it as a whirlpool hop. Um, but as a bio transformation dry hop, you're just not getting a lot off of it. So look at the total oil content. If it's a flavor you want and it's got high total oil, use that to bio transformation dry hop.
1: Yeah. Uh, suggestions for a winter beer recipe.
0: Oh, um, actually before I want to thank, go. I want to, I want to thank, uh, Brian Parks for, um, using the correct spelling and pronunciation of assy
1: one hundred percent. You are a good man, sir. Yep. Good man.
0: Ask Corbs and Skabubs. If you guys know those two words, you're going to be great brewers. All right? Uh, definitely.
1: Fine. Yeah. Uh, winter ale beer recipes. Um, you know. It, it, this is a little bit different region per region in there. Um, winter ales where we are at are actually, uh, we produce in Spokane, are a little bit different than, say, Seattle. Because Seattle's a lot warmer than we are. Uh, we tend to get a lot more snow. So we tend to be so a more, booze. more robust. Yeah. Uh, good things about winter ale, though, is... <clears throat> Keep it robust enough to last up to the cold weather outside. And when you're coming in, you're still a little bit cold. You want something that's just going to kind of like fortify you. But at the same time, most of the time in the winter, you're drinking inside. You're not wearing your coats. It's a little bit warm. So you don't want to go overly heavy like you would for like an Imperial stout. You still want to be a little bit on the lighter end so you can have a good time, you know, drinking a lot of it. I know that's not very specific. Uh, at all.
0: But so if I'm going to do a winter ale recipe, I'm 100% of the time going to have special X in that. Uh, if not special X, special B. Um, mm. But you know my love for special X. And so that's going to be in there. Halcyon is probably going to be my, be my base malts. And it's going to be boozy. So I'm going to rely on a long boil time. If you have those three things. Uh, oh, and your yeast. I'm probably going to pick. Uh, combination uh, So Fuller Strain is my favorite yeast. If mm, it's above yes. an 8% beer, I'm going to have to co-pitch. So I'm probably going to do a primary pitch with Fuller Strain, which is pub and Imperial, London ESB and Y-East, and English, English. Ale and White Labs. Um, yeah. But then if I'm going over 8%, which I probably am, I'm probably going to finish it off with Irish Ale yeast for that little bit of funk.
1: Little bit of funk in there.
0: Yeah, uh, along with that, I mean, kind of what he's saying on
1: it. Uh, English strains work really well for it because that little bit of extra fruitiness is normally pretty appreciable in uh, at least winter beers around here.
0: Bring us some so. figgy pudding flavored beer.
1: Yes, definitely, one hundred percent.
0: The amount of time for skubbing a five gallon batch, um, if you're skubbing with CO two to yeast rouse, uh, probably just about two minutes. Um, if you're talking about pre uh, pre yeast pitch for with an oxygen stone really like 30 seconds is enough.
1: Yeah. Um you don't need a lot. You don't need a lot. Um I mean it I guess it kind of depends on what you're doing with it. If you have, you know, a two barrel batch of beer and you're trying to add just a little bit of vanilla flavoring to it, you're going to skabob for a little bit longer than saying just trying to rouse the yeast cake on bottom.
0: How is a Russian Imperial Stout classified under the BJCP? I believe it is a style. I know it was a style when I memorized yeah. the book in 2008. Um, Yes, I mean, it's under the several categories of stout, which there are foreign extra stout, uh, Irish dry stout, American stout, Imperial stout, and Russian Imperial stout. Um, Russian Imperial stout is boozy. It's hoppy. It's thick. It can finish uh, as high as 1024 final gravity, which is pretty thick. I think it's Mm. final gravity is between 1018 and 1024. Um, And I think it's like up to 85 IBUs. I've seen
1: a lot of them over 100, in all honesty, too.
0: They're big, boozy, sweet beers, and that's why they need that many hops just to kind of stand up to the overall flavor. But I believe they are a BJCP style. You keep referring Mm -hmm. to Halcyon. Why is it so different and special? Because it tastes better, my man.
1: So let me break this down for you. Uh, Halcyon is a pale ale malt. It's an English pale ale style. It gives you all of those really big flavor... I don't want to say no, it's because it's kind of the wrong word. It gives you that big flavor impact that Maris Otter does, but it's not as sweet and uh, caramel malty. It is still very malty. It's big flavor impact into everything. It, it, It is like you're using Maris Otter, just a little bit less sweet into it. So if you're going for styles, in fact, Halcyon is what we use for all of our juicy and hazy IPAs. But if you're going for a style that does need a bigger base malt to it, but Maris Otter is just going to be too sweet or too dark and inappropriate, Halcyon is where you sit. It's the that best way to put it, yeah. Great, great malt to use.
0: All the bigness of a Golden Promise or a Maris Otter, but it's light. But it's light.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Apparently,
0: by the way, apparently uh, caused uh, morebeer.com <laughs> yeah, to be sold out of Halcyon. Yeah. Uh, there was somebody that uh, called them and uh, um, asked if they were going to get Halcyon <laughs> anytime soon. And the person who answered mm. the phone was like, You've been listening to Genus Brewing, haven't you? Jimmy. Jimmy. This is good.
1: Dude, I'm almost <clears throat> getting. Um Toasted marshmallow out of it.
0: Well, the I mean, the the, the oak is huge. The first thing was the oak yeah. was almost too much, but now I've kind of like desensitized my palate to the oak. But the, the oak was, yeah, a little bit much at the front end, but then all the brandiness hit me, and I was like, mm, mm. no, my body's mm. warm.
1: Nice. Uh, actually, I'm going to jump on something that you said, desensitizing your palate. Uh, this is something uh, we actually give large tasters here at the brewery, and people always look at us like we're crazy. There's a reason for it. When tasting a beer it's always important to have enough uh to do three independent tastes in your mouth you need one taste to kind of shock your palate you need a second to uh, adjust and kill off certain taste buds kill off certain taste buds and then the third taste is the true taste of the beer this is especially important in big and or uh, sour beers so big barrel aged beers and sour beers you need to give them at least three tastes before you decide that you like it you'll have a much better experience when you do
0: uh, jimmy says by the way sorry i know you don't like crystal malt and your in the barley wine but i did use a half pound of drc in that 30 pound green bill Half pound is not that much. Also, DRC is like a pseudo-crystal. It's I a little still, bit different. I still go 100% base malt. The best possible barley wine, this is 100%, is 100% halcyon malt, boiled for four hours.
1: Uh, you know, <clears throat> I may I might not be in agreement on the base malt, but, yes, uh, I would probably say Chevalier for me. Like, Chevalier for four hours is just, ah. Uh. But I do tend to like a little bit more towards the uh, October ale English style barley wines where you like a little bit more American.
0: I do. So that would make sense. That is true. But um, by the way, we've got 133 people still watching. If all of you can give this video a thumbs up, that would uh, that would help. That would make me feel uh, happy on the inside. And I believe that's what everybody wants in life.
1: Uh, that is definitely what we want in life is for him to feel happy on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um And his wife, his wife would be appreciative.
0: I want my wife to feel happy on the inside too. Buzzing.
1: (laughs) Should I? Yeah. He calls his penis happy. (laughs) I'm sorry, Lisa. I had to. Uh, Anyway, so um, yeah, uh, Red Oak red oak is an interesting uh, choice jimmy you don't see that very often okay let me actually go into <clears> this there is a th- reason that you don't see red oak uh, versus white oak and barrels this is a cooper type of thing cooper is a person who builds barrels if you didn't know lisa says also, keep going
0: with the penis jokes
1: yeah definitely uh also my nephew but anyway, uh <laughs> white oak we use white oak a lot and in particular white oak uh because when you actually um season the woods, the pores on the inside get fixed open so oxygen can uh transfer through. Red oak is generally normally only used uh, cuz red oak when you fix it, sorry, let me backtrack. White oak the pores are fixed open. Red oak, the pores are fixed closed. So they don't allow that micro oxygenation through. There is also a little bit of difference in flavor. I don't remember what that is. Um, so red oak is generally only used when you don't want that oxygen transferred. So you don't see it very much. Now that's an interesting choice, Jimmy.
0: Um, I will point out that Jimmy is uh, mentioning that he used uh, Baroness Pale Ale and Lions Munich. Those are both two local malts made by Link Malting Company, which we've mentioned before on the channel. Um, mm. And we had Teddy from uh the grain shed who works closely with link malts quite a bit um, on the channel four weeks ago if you want to check out a little bit more about some local awesome malts um but uh he large portions of english pale and some Lion munich i even though I usually say a single malt, I don't mind malts like Munich or Vienna being in barley wines. Those are good flavor builders and a good way to kind of quicken that Maillard production. Um,
1: <clears throat> but use them as fine-tuning elements. Yeah. Don't boil your barley wine for an hour and then use Munich to get the color out of it.
0: Yeah, it's Munich and melanoidin and malt.
1: It's, you know what? You can do it. You'll make a beer that It'd has be a lot of yeah. alcohol in it, and it will taste okay. But it will not taste like this. That two-hour
0: boil that Jimmy did is key. It's important. This is is a really good beer.
1: It is a really good beer. I Uh, like the fruitiness that's coming out of the brandy.
0: Yeah. Um, Can baking soda be used to deacidify mead must? Yes, it can. Uh, You got to be careful because adding sodium is going to change the overall profile. And so it's going to taste, it's going to proceed a little bit thicker and sweeter. Um, And then if, obviously, you add too much, you're going to go... Um, over the flavor threshold the wrong way and it's just gonna taste bad. But um, in small quantities, baking soda can be used to deacidify mead must.
1: Uh, Best way to utilize lavender in mead is carefully. Uh,
0: Actually- Wave it near your mead and then just kind of throw it away.
1: (laughs) Hey, I love lavender. Um, So I'm gonna actually get on this one. Uh, Culinary lavender is what you're using. If you're using the plant, use some culinary lavender, is much different than just like your candle making, perfume making, regular type of lavender. It's much, much less harsh uh, and tannic and pungent and aggressive. Also, what I would probably do with it is use part of it, or only make part of it lavender, and maybe a little bit more intensely lavender than you normally would, and then blend that back into an unlavendered mead, so you can better control the level of lavenderiness. I like that. Or make a tincture out of it. Toss it in some really high-proof gin grain spirit, and oh. uh, I mean, gin actually works really well. That responds well to lavender I
0: love gin and lavender
1: but uh, tossing it into you know like a hundred proof uh, vodka or something like that and just letting it soak for a couple of weeks and then dosing your mead with that tincture instead of the actual lavender itself lavender can be overused very very quickly it does not take much to taste like potpourri so I love it lavender in my opinion to me
0: lavender goes soapy before potpourri
1: Yeah, well, that too.
0: Like, it reminds Uh, me of the the hand soap that my elementary school had.
1: He swore a lot, so he got his mouth washed out a few times. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, it it is very easy to go that way. I love lavender. I think it should be in more things. Or or use it in conjunction with things. Uh, One of our local spice companies here, Spiceology, they're awesome. Buy stuff from them. Uh, But their Herbe de Provence actually has a nice, uh, to me, a really nice level of uh, lavender in it. And maybe using that spice blend so you're getting the lavender, but you don't have to go so aggressive on it. Or pairing it up with a blackberry or, you know, things like that. It's also really nice. Yeah. All right.
0: Bring back the got? powdered soap. Oh,
1: yeast and the beast. You've asked this a couple of times. What's so a good temp for sundew? Uh, sundew, again, is a base Belgian strain, so it's kind of depending on how much flavor you want out of it. 72 to 76. Is... Great for bringing out those high, good, fruity, belgiany notes. You can still get them if you ferment cooler at you know standard ale temperatures. It's just going to be a lot less. Um, for an
0: IPA, I might go a little bit lower.
1: Yeah, you but. don't want to drive off too many uh, hop volatiles or create nasty things. Uh, but going up a little bit too high, actually, we haven't experimented with going uh, extremely high on sundew, but I don't know that I would trust it. Uh, If it goes over 80, it's probably going to be too hot. Um, I think we ferment at, uh, we set our glycol chiller at 72, 73. That way it has a good little buffer in there.
0: Uh, Horseshoe Crab, have you ever used domestic Canadian hops and malts? Not usually available internationally like... La Quebecoise malts and Sasquatch hops. If not, would you be interested? If I sent some to you guys to compare, uh, I'd be very interested. I believe we've used Sasquatch hops um, once before, but uh, I don't know about that. That would have been when no, that was during the shutdown. I think we were sent a small, small amount of it, out. Um, but uh, that was a while ago. Long
1: time ago. Uh, Empire Wagon French lavender and English lavender. This is kind of what I'm talking about in there. Know your lavender. It really <clears> helps really helps, especially knowing all your herbs. Uh, uh, Pamela came back with some uh, heather in there. Using heather is awesome and in fact, using heather in Scottish ales is far more appropriate than using hops. Yeah. Because they tend to use heather in that. Uh, For Americans especially, this is a basic thing to remember about making Scottish beers and overdoing hops and other stupid things in them. The uh, Scottish ate the English and they don't want to pay for English goods. Most of the hops come from England, so they don't exist in most Scottish beers. Because why would you pay the English for something when you can just throw Heather in there and it will be delicious? Also, smoke is not appropriate in most Scottish beers. Just because Scotch whiskey is smoky does not mean that Scottish beers are whiskey.
0: No, uh, not all Scotch whiskies are smoky either.
1: No. They also make some
0: really, really good
1: award-winning gin, too
0: yeah Um, uh, I love fermenting what I have in my yard is there anything I can use rosemary for is there such a good thing as such a thing as a rosemary beer not exactly but that said if you pair that rosemary with some lemons there's a lot of things that you can probably do to make it taste super good Um, I would say uh, rosemary and lemon and any sort of like a wheat beer a pilsner Uh, if you wanted to go a little bit crazy and do a complete like actual shandy wheat beer with rosemary and your lemonade for your shandy that'd be super Mm. good um Mm-hmm. rosemary
1: is aggressive just remember that it's super aggressive so as a standalone ingredient it's probably not going to be the best but if you guys will go on and watch the web about lobsters then one of the ingredients actually was rosemary we forced them to use rosemary in a beer
0: yeah and i think it was overall used pretty well i think a good combination of a little bit of a whirlpool rosemary and some tinkties um is probably the best way to do it but
1: Yeah, Uh, and, you know, I would even honestly say you can go into things that you're not thinking about. Uh, Pairing, again, pairing rosemary with some fruit uh, and then throwing it into a sour, I think, could be phenomenally delicious. Uh, We've had some incredible gruets, and in fact, we made a really good gruet with uh, some rosemary and beets. Uh, It's just one of those things that think about the flavor that you're adding in there, what it's going to add to the overall beer and uh, balance that out with the other flavors. And balance doesn't necessarily mean the teeter-totter needs to be right in the center. If you have a lot of weight on one end, you need to move that fulcrum further down your lever to make it balance. So, you know, just think about what you're doing.
0: Uh, Bryn Perks, Genus Tour to the UK for beers, whiskey, and gin. I agree. If you start by like going GoFundMe fund me and we get to the level that it would need for us to actually make that trip, then it'll happen. Uh, 100%. I mean,
1: it'll probably happen at least individually with both of us at some point. Anyway, my wife has a, uh, awesome goal of at least making it over, over there for a little bit. And I do too. I do too. I but eventually
0: we'll have enough money to just do it. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, <laughs> uh, what is the longest period you can dry hop? This is actually a really, really great question. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, Dependent on what type of hops you are using, but as a great rule, you are right. Five days is about all you want to go.
0: Also focus on maintaining or maximizing surface contact. So if you are going for five days, uh, you slightly risk some... um, some grassy, some greenness, uh, but it's not a huge risk. And so five days is a really good kind of medium to make sure you get full contact and make sure you don't get that grassiness. But if you're going three days, like I prefer to, um, if you're going three days, make sure that you have those hops spread out in your fermenter, or you have some way to recirculate your beer through your hops or around your hops or over your hops. But you want to be, you want to be making sure that you're maximizing that beer contact with your hops.
1: Yeah, um, and why I say it matters what hop products you're using, because the more green material you have in your beer, the less time you should have contacts on it. Uh, Cryo hops or Lupo Max have a lot less green material. They're going to go grassy. Uh, They're going to take a lot longer to go grassy than, say, traditional hop pellets or whole leaves, Uh, so they can go a little bit longer. If you're using a hop oil or something like that, then it kind of doesn't matter, Uh, but Three to five days. That's what you should do for it. All right. Uh, I don't know who called me out on this, but where is it? Empire Wagon. Fun facts with Timothy. It was actually him. He should sing, but whatever. (laughs) Did you know the ancients who and I don't know that this is 100% fact, but I love it. You just called me out, so I got a quick fact. Uh, ancient Sumerians believe that their water god, Enki, created the Tigris and Euphrates rivers by masturbating and ejaculating into the riverbeds. Now you know.
0: That that excites me.
1: <laughs> it's a fun fact. I love that fact, actually.
0: Do you dry hop good. after Do you dry hop after VDK rest or during? I'm um, always gonna be after uh well I should say it depends on the beer. If it's for yeah. active fermentation, if it's going to be some if I also need um uh, if I also need biotransformation, it's always going to be during. Um, the thing about uh, VDK rest and dry hopping, if you do it after, you're always running the risk of hop creek, which can also produce diacetyl. And so it is, uh, if you're doing it after, you better make sure your beer is completely done fermenting and you have to do it completely cold. So that's the caveat to do if you do a dry hop um, after VDK rest. Other than that, all the situations do it during VDK rest while the beer is warm
1: yeah hop creep is a real thing if you've ever wondered why one of your beers tasted really good when you put it into the keg a high hop dry hopped beer at least and then afterwards it was way different you had a whole bunch of dms in there or it's actually a lot a different tasting beer because it's way drier more alcoholic than it should be this is hop creep hops have enzymes that further convert uh stuff in the sugars and yeast will still ferment that. So that's a real thing. Be aware of it in high hopped beers.
0: Um, You guys never answered which hop I should use for the 60 minute boil edition in my hazy. Great question, Daniel. I would use probably like five to six ounces of, uh, I don't know, galaxy or strata or, you know, you know, just, just go all that, whatever the most expensive hop you can find is.
1: Um, I'm 100%. All right. So you should throw probably about two ounces of galaxy in there. But back that up with three ounces of Nelson Savan, and then for your whirlpool edition, uh, I don't know, probably all warrior, like maybe five ounces of warrior.
0: Yeah, all warrior. Um, yeah, or just like you know some debitter bitter hops, just some aged hops for your whirlpool. <laughs>
1: For the guy who thought we said bread, and it, it's just funny. I love, love that you did that. That was amazing, man. You should send us a bottle of that beer. Uh, <laughs> we are being sarcastic right now because you especially can't tell with him. Don't believe this.
0: <laughs> uh, using glucoamylase to get the most fermentable sugar in a beer, a suggestion. Um, glucoamylase has a, has a place. Uh, high alcohol beer, um, yes, glucoamylase is a great way to get the most fermentables it in it. Yeah. Low alcohol beer, don't use glucoamylase unless you're making a brewed IPA
1: uh empire wagon this is a thing about uh, that you accidentally did seven days with simcoe it tasted like vegetables and grass that's the hop material you're pulling flavors from the actual greens of the hops you know that's especially where you get the grass and the vegetable from that's why you should not go more than five days if you can if you forget about it you forgot about it but try not to All
0: right. uh, Uh, With a plastic fermenter like Firmzilla or Fermentosaurus, any suggestions on dry hop method? uh, I use a fish line so I can pull it out after five days, but looking for suggestions. I don't recommend that because I don't recommend opening up your beer at any point in time. If you're using a Fermentosaurus and use a fishing line, you'd want that hop to be just below the top of the beer line. That way, you can put the whole beer on tap, get it cold. Um, Getting it cold will also slow the rate of grassiness. But then you can just drink it down below the hops. There we go.
1: Uh this is a so getting it cold will slow that rate. This is why you see sometimes people uh will dry hop in keg but keep it cold. It's also a reason that you shouldn't dry hop in keg unless you're going to drink that within a couple days.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All, all right. right, I think we should probably uh, get this thing closed out. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, let me see if I can find. There was one really good question way, way, way up there. There once was a
0: man from there. Da, 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 da.
1: Yeah, okay, I can't. I should learn that, you know, but.
0: Everyone subscribe
1: second channel. Every, all right, guys, well, let's just close it out there. I can't. Uh, I can't find what I was going to answer. It's way too far back, and that is effort. I'm not about effort. Uh, Thanks for watching with us today. hope everybody has a a good Easter. You know, find all the eggs. Don't leave one lost in your house. That will be unfortunate unless it's your ex's house, and then, you know, hide a few more. Um, So, yeah, thanks for... uh, Thanks for hanging out with us, we appreciate that. Subscribe to our second channel if you haven't watched all the stuff, it's fun. Leave some good comments for our wives, they were super nervous doing it, and they need some more encouragement to be in more videos because let's face it, they look better than we do. Uh, Follow all our Instagrams, you know we got them, you know what they are, because you should already be following them. Like this video, share it, tell all your friends, and uh, most importantly, send us beer. Empire wagon thanks for the super chat. Whoa! (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You asked, you know, somebody asked for a fun fact. They got it. They got it. <laughs> Have a good uh, afternoon, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.